Welcome to High Noon, where we talk about controversial subjects with interesting people. And I'm Inez Stepman, and I'm back after turning over this podcast for the week to uh, Emily Jashinsky and Maddie Kearns last week. I hope you enjoyed that. Um, I know I did. It was fun, fun experience to listen to my own podcast <laughs> as, as a listener. Um, but this week, uh, this week, we have Nate Hawkman, who is an ISI fellow at National Review, a Robert Novak fellow at the Fund for American Studies, and a fellow Claremonster, by which I mean he was a Publius Fellow with the Claremont Institute. So he's won just about every fellowship that a, a young, up-and-coming uh, conservative intellectual can can win. Um, and, and he has another one of those jewels in the crown, which is he has been published in the New York Times. Um, he wrote a very interesting essay, which is, again, a remarkable achievement, not only because the New York Times still has mainstream purchase, um, but because they didn't manage to edit out all the interesting things that you wrote uh, and try to turn them around on on conservatives. But um, at the New York Times, where they like to read, uh, write hysterical screeds about evangelical dominionism, you actually have an essay that essentially tells those readers to be careful what they wish for. Um, could you lay out your thesis uh, in this essay, which is is called What Comes After the Religious Right? Right. Well, thanks for having me, Inez. Um, I think the the basic premise of the New York Times essay, which came out last month, was that it's no secret to anyone who's sort of been paying attention that the decline of religion is an empirical fact in America. We're seeing, you know, by the double digits decline in church going rates and, and affiliation with any kind of organized religious identity in America. And that's been going on at least since the 1990s. But one thing that I think hasn't really been discussed enough is the fact that that is not just occurring on the left. Certainly the decline in religion started in the mainline Protestant liberal denominations, but it's now moved into the conservative evangelical Protestant and other kinds of conservative theologically and politically conservative denominations as well. And what that means is that the so-called religious right, the kind of religious social conservative movement that really became a political force in the 1970s and has been a major player in the Republican Party since around then, uh, is in decline in an important way, just in terms of the fact that there are less bodies, there are less voters who sort of make up that demographic than there used to be. So that doesn't mean, of course, that religious conservatives aren't going to play a major role in Republican politics for the foreseeable future. They still control large swaths of the Bible Belt and Republicans, including Donald Trump, you know, feel the need to make appeals to them in order to win elections. But it does mean that there is a kind of more secular strain of conservatism that is increasingly surfacing and making itself known. Um, and that was, in, in many ways, one of the reasons that Donald Trump won the 2016 Republican nomination was because he actually did better with Republican voters who didn't go to church in the primary than he did with Republican voters who did go to church. So I was trying to sort of make sense of what this sort of secular conservatism, which is still a kind of cultural conservatism, actually looks like and what it means for the Republican Party and what I concluded was that there are a variety of culture war issues, you know, education fights, debates over immigration, American identity, critical race theory and gender ideology in schools, all these things that we're really familiar with, which certainly old school religious conservatives still hold conservative positions on. But you don't necessarily need to be a religious person to sort of fall with the right in, in terms of your view of those issues. And what you're seeing is the rise of millions and millions of voters who are often moving into the Republican coalition because they're alienated from the cultural left, who not, aren't necessarily churchgoers, they're not necessarily religious, but they are kind of culturally conservative on all these other issues. And the culture war is 
forming this new cultural conservative coalition, which is not directly informed by religion anymore, but still has the kind of social conservative affect. So I was sort of trying to wrestle with what that means for the future of the conservative movement, for the future of the GOP, and ultimately, obviously, for the for the future of America. Yeah, you know, you, you point out that there are plenty of tensions um, in this coalition, right? Uh, and I think the the best maybe avatar for the new secular right on these cultural questions might be somebody like Dave Portnoy or the so-called barstool conservatism. Um, and, and I think maybe an, an, an analog on uh, across the, the sex spectrum might be, um, you know, suburban white female voters, college educated female voters who handed Glenn Young in the election over education issues. Both of those uh, groups of voters probably really upset about the Dobbs decision. Right. So we have now, um, because of this decision, we have abortion thrown back into the political mix. Um, and it, it, it's almost funny to think about because it, it how, let me ask you this. How do you think the issue of abortion, which is sort of this traditional moral majority type issue, how do you think that issue is going to make waves in this new political coalition where the center of the culture war is not gay marriage or abortion? or hasn't been at least, it's been what's being taught in your child's school. It's been the Southern border um, issues, as you say, of identity, nationhood, um, of, of education and, and citizenship. How, how are these essentially the reinsertion of a, a moral majority issue abortion back into the political process? How is that going to affect these different coalitions? Well, that really is the ultimate question, right? I mean, I think one of the things that I was talking about, especially towards the end of the piece, is that overturning Roe, this was written after Dobbs had leaked, but before Roe was officially overturned, um, could really heighten the contradictions for this coalition. And I think we already are seeing the beginnings of that. Um, for people who are on Twitter, they, they might have come across Dave Portnoy's temper tantrum <laughs> that he threw after Roe was officially overturned, um, where he said, despite the fact that he hates the, the woke left, he's going to vote Democrat now because Republicans are trying to ban abortion. There are certainly plenty of voters who probably share that general disposition, particularly the kind of secular so-called barstool conservatives named after Dave Portnoy, who are really anti-woke, but are kind of, you know, definitely not Christian, sort of sexually libertine, probably pro-choice. Some of them might drift back into the Democratic Party coalition. But I think that, you know, I, I don't think that that's sort of the end of this coalition of voters, because a lot of these voters, A, they just might not care about abortion very much, right? I mean, for a lot of voters, it's just not a particularly high priority. Or they might find that they are put off more by kind of left-wing cultural ideology and the increasingly aggressive radical edge of it than they are by the Republican Party's stance on abortion. Um, or they might actually be alienated by the left's abortion radicalism. I mean, remember, most Americans kind of fall between the two parties when it comes to abortion. They're not with the full pro-lifers in that they generally are supportive of first-term abortions and maybe some exceptions in the second term. But they're really, really uncomfortable with as, as you progress through the, the pregnancy, the sort of late term abortions, which is something that the Democratic Party is behind. So everything's in flux right now. I think anyone who pretends to know exactly what's going to happen is probably overly confident um, because we don't know exactly what's going to happen. But what I, I think both parties are going to have to sort of articulate positions that are actually probably unpopular with the vast majority of voters. And the, the broad mass of voters who are probably moderately pro-choice are going to choose which party they're less put off by. Um, and for a lot of voters, that'll be the GOP. And I think probably for some voters, it'll mean moving back into the Democratic coalition. Secular figures like Trump, 
right? And and I really do think Trump is perhaps the, and I noticed this during the 2016 um, primaries, Trump was the first Republican candidate who did not have to make an apology for his aggressively libertine lifestyle, right? For example, his sexual morality. Um, and it's not that we hadn't had nominees on the right and famously Reagan and, and um, Newt Gingrich, who got pretty far in the, the political process, right? Who has been married three times. Reagan was married twice. Um, but not only was Trump kind of on the, on the far edge of, of sort of personal licentiousness, he didn't, I noticed this in 2016, he did not have to make an apology, like a, a come to Jesus moment. A, I've made mistakes in my past, but now I'm, I'm living on the straight and narrow. He never actually, you know, had to make that apology in order to appeal to Republican voters. Um, and he, he really, as you say, he attracted a, sec- a more secularizing component of the GOP. Um, and yet it's been Trump that delivered in many ways um, this, this Dobbs decision, right, through his Supreme Court appointments. It's Trump that probably had the biggest victories even before this uh, in terms of, of the pro-life issue. I mean, is is that the shape of things to come? Because you, you seem to kind of be suggesting that, that in fact, even though rhetorically or in terms of priorities, the religious right may have to make more compromises and acknowledge that the reality that they are no longer the political force that they once were. At the same time, this secularizing post-religious coalition has potentially the ability to deliver them hard victories on issues that they've been losing for decades. Right. And that was exactly the point that I was making uh, in the Times piece. This is, I I guess, the optimistic reading, but I think there's a legitimate point to it, which is that because this more secularized version of conservatism is appealing to millions more voters who might have been put off by the old religious right, it has the capacity to dramatically expand the Republican Party tent. And by doing that, it has the capacity to send Republicans into power who actually can pass some religious right priorities. Remember, you know, Trump, certainly a, an avatar of this more sort of secular conservatism, was the person who delivered the number one religious right priority since the inception of the religious right, right, since the 1970s. Um, and I think in many ways, while religious voters might not be particularly excited about having to ally with people who do not, uh, for any number of reasons, share their theological and moral commitments. It is an alliance that can bear real fruit for sort of traditional social conservatives because it has the capacity to win. So obviously in politics, all coalition building requires compromises and concessions, and the religious right is going to have to make concessions if they want to remain electorally viable. But I think that they can use the emergence of this coalition to their advantage to do a lot of things that they might not have been able to do on their own. And I think that's the way that sort of traditional religious and social conservatives should think about this. You don't have to sacrifice your own personal principles to be part of a coalition, but you do have to be willing to work as a coalition partner to advance shared ends. And I think, you know, the end of row is just a a perfect example of how that can be successful if different coalition members work together. One of the more interesting pieces um, of this essay is where you write about the moderating influence of Christianity, that that Christianity has actually had um, an enormous moderating influence, the way that the American right thinks about, for example, um, you know, patriotism versus nationalism or sort of a hard nationalism or ethnic nationalism versus a more inclusive, universal kind of American patriotism, nationalism, whatever you want to call it. Um, you cite you cite some white nationalists um, 
in, in service of this point, uh, certainly not knew that white nationalists despise Christianity. Uh, Hitler thought that it had weakened the, the traditional pagan German people, right? Um, because it has themes of forgiveness, of universality, uh, the, the elimination, for example, of, of the, the difference between Jew and Greek, right? Um, you know, what does that moderating influence disappearing say about maybe any potential dangers to the rise of the post-religious right? Because this essay is descriptive, right? It's, it's not normative. You, you really don't take a position about whether or not this is a good or bad thing. You're just saying this is happening. Um, and this may, you know, this may shape our politics in these potential ways going forward. You know, do you have any worries about where the post-religious right could end up? Um, or do you think that sort of the American right is inherently uh, for example, less less ethno-nationalist than, say, perhaps the French right or the right in a lot of European countries? Well, I do think that the American right is inherently less, um, it's a less blood and soil conservatism just necessarily because of what America is and always has been. I think that's pretty clear. But there are obviously dangerous places that any version of this could go. And I, I was citing some really, really interesting opinion polling that showed that the old Christian conservatives actually had much more moderate views on issues like immigration, for example, than less religious conservatives. Less religious Republican voters were much more likely to favor something like a, you know, Trump's Muslim ban. That's the sort of colloquial version for it. Um, much more likely to support reductions in legal immigration rates. Um, there's a there's a sort of much more sort of hard edged disposition to a lot of these new cultural issues or resurgent cultural issues on the more secular right than there is. Uh, in many ways, in the old kind of Christian conservative end of, of the conservative spectrum. For me, as someone who also, uh, you know, as someone who deplores racism, but is also really concerned about something like immigration, I actually think there could be a salutary version of this, which is that the GOP gets serious about something like the border, whereas the old Christian conservatives were maybe less interested for, for a variety of reasons in actually championing a serious border hawkish position. But it's also true, you know, as you said, there's a reason that white supremacists wanted to do away with Christianity, which is that it's very hard to take Christianity seriously and be a racist because of what Christianity actually says um, about the brotherhood of man. And, in, you know, in, in any of these developments, if you do do away with a sort of humanizing Christian ethic, it can go dangerous at places. So I'm someone who is skeptical of a lot of the sort of hysteria that you hear in the mainstream media about the racism of the contemporary Republican coalition. I don't actually think that championing something like immigration restriction makes you a racist. Um, I'm not a racist, and I, I tend to think that immigration restriction is a good policy for the country right now. Um, so insofar as this shift does shift the GOP towards uh, a more aggressive culture war strategy, I think that's a good thing. But we always have to be vigilant, obviously, about where this could go. And that was sort of an attempt to outline the darkest place that uh, one of these developments could go, even if that's not something that I think is happening right now. Yeah, I mean, I, I tend to agree with you. I, I don't think that that part of the political spectrum has any any real uh, sort of power, any real either political or institutional power. So I'm not I'm not particularly worried about it. But uh, to the I'll say this to the extent that I'm worried about it, it's not because there's some some kids who like to troll on Twitter and shock people that you know I I don't take that very seriously. I I, I kind of think that it's it's more. There's always an instinct, and this I do think is kind of an aspect of being young. Um, there is always an instinct to shock your elders, right, and and to to puncture whatever shibboleths are are particularly shocking. And now that our society's biggest taboos are around, uh, you know, race 
and sex. Um, I think there, there it was inevitable that there would be like the equivalent of the kids scrawling on the on the locker, right? Um, and and I think a lot of that is that, but I do think that you know one of the reasons America has been able to be a multi ethnic um, republic in 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 a way that is is very different, and as, as you say, our history is so different from most European countries. Um, I think one of the reasons has been that they've had a, a, a sort of soft Christian establishment, not not a legal one, um, but but a, a sort of soft Protestant Christian ethos in the country that has actually bound people together across racial lines in a way that our kind of raw tribalism would make difficult with at, in, in its absence. And I, I wonder what what happens when that glue starts to disappear. And of course, it's disappearing at the same time as the, the other glues, like the civic sort of religion, right, that existed about about around the American founding. That becomes explicitly political and, and polarized. Combining those two things, the, la- the sort of declining religiosity and the decline of the American civic religion, there is a part of me that starts to worry whether America will become more explicitly ethnically tribalist in the future. Right. And I think, look, that you can see the version of this happening in the inverse on the left which has its own kind of ethnic tribalism, um, which it's much more explicit about actually than the right when it comes to sort of categorizing people by race and uh, conceiving of American politics in explicitly racialized terms. Um, to me, that's, that's clearly a negative development um, and a departure from what America traditionally has been. Um, I, you know, I, I think I, I, one of the reasons that I was descriptive and not normative, you're right to point that out. It was a strategic uh, approach on my part because I really sort of am very confused about what I think about this phenomenon in many ways. I am incredibly concerned about the decline of institutionalized religion in America. I share the basic um, conservative view that religion is crucially important for civic harmony. Uh, and that alongside the decline of this basic shared kind of commitment to the sense that America is a good country and a positive sort of patriotic sense of shared citizenship. Those are existential issues um, for the country. And they are things that I think Americans are going to be reckoning with at least for my lifetime. Um, so the future is uncertain. I think in many ways, the, the good aspects of this development, insofar as it is advantageous politically and electorally for conservatives, is that it will lead to a politics that allows us to fight the negative trends in American life, whether it be this sort of militant secularism that hates religion or this militant anti-Americanism that hates our sort of shared civic public religion. Um, so that's what I want to see conservatives focus on. And I want to see them be able to reach as many voters as possible to be able to do that without sacrificing core principles. So I'm going to try to make the defense. Um, and in many ways, I am part of what you're uh, you're describing of the phenomenon you're describing. I'm not a religious person. Um, I don't have any institutional religious ties. Um, but let's 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 give the, the sort of moral majority their due here. Because you wrote, it's hard to imagine today's culture warriors taking any interest in the 1950s push for a Christian amendment to the Constitution, for example, instead of an explicitly biblical focus on issues like school prayer, no-fault divorce, and homosexuality, the new coalition is focused on questions of national identity, social integrity, and political alienation. So to what extent did abandonment of those earlier religious issues or, or losses on those cultural issues, right, or perhaps religion itself declining, 
to what extent did that actually precipitate a lot of the cultural problems that do seem so pressing now that necessitate that focus on national identity, social integrity, um, integrity, um, and political alienation, right? Because, for example, just the sexual revolution's insistence that men and women live essentially interchangeable sexual lives. That's clearly antecedent not only for the abortion debates, but also for the transgenderism that that is part of the key sort of secular culture wars today. So how, how much of this is just, to use the, the favorite phrase now, uh, is downstream of conservative losses during the moral majority era? Like how, how much is, are these two things connected um, to the fact that they did lose a lot of those key moral battles in, in the culture to the extent now that even 55% of um, Republicans or something like that agree with gay marriage? Um, to what extent are these things connected rather than um, kind of two separate issue sets? Oh, I think they're absolutely connected. I mean, look, I am a traditional social conservative in many ways, and I agree with the religious right on most of the issues that they were fighting about. So I, I, I mourn those losses, and I think that overall the religious right's failure to stem the tide of cultural liberalism is what has gotten us to this place, right? You cannot have the transgender moment without first having the gay marriage moment. Right. That just it would not it would not work if you did not first dismantle the idea that marriage is between one man and one woman before you can even get to the question of whether or not men and women exist at all. It's pretty obvious to me that that progression has been leftwards in the culture and social conservatives and cultural conservatives are fighting a rearguard action um, in many ways. For me, the question now is it's okay to mourn those losses, but you have to actually at some point figure out how to engage with reality on the ground as it is today and how best to fight those battles. And I think what I was trying to outline was sort of a, a way forward for both social and cultural conservatives, regardless of your religious commitments, to actually fight those battles. So it, the the culture war today and the fierceness of the issues and the radicalism of the left that we're fighting, that's all the results of the fact that conservatives were unable to stop the leftwards lurch of the culture in the 1980s and the 1990s and the 2000s. That's all true. I think the the sort of other aspect of that story that might complicate everything a little bit is that religious conservatives were also quite narrow in the way that they conceived of the culture war, right? It was really about public religion, abortion, same-sex marriage, sort of rights of homosexuality in general. They were not conceiving of the culture war as broadly as I think that they should have. And in terms of engaging with sort of how debates over, you know, American history are taught or how, you know, to talk about, uh, you know, national identity, immigration, all these new issues that have entered uh, into our political discourse over the course of the last few years, those were important issues too. And I think that religious conservatives weren't engaging on them as much as they should. So that's the sort of salutary aspect of this development now, which is that I think conservatives actually have a much more holistic view of the culture war and are engaging in terms that actually sort of understand that the culture war permeates all of our other issues rather than siloing specific social issues like abortion off from other political issues. Um, so I think the right right now is better situated to aggressively fight the culture war than it has been for a long time. And that's something that I'm excited to see. But it's also true that one of the reasons that we're in the position we're in is because <laughs> we have sustained enormous losses over the last few decades uh, in the cultural sphere. And that's a reason for, for serious concern. Absolutely. Yeah, you, we, you pointed out something before we went live with this podcast, which is um, both the left and the right are convinced they're losing, mm -hmm. right? Um, 
<laughs> why are they wrong and we're right? <laughs> um, <laughs> but but why why is it that a large part of the left? Because this is consistent over time, at least as long as I've been in politics, is is that the left also feels that it's losing, and I I actually cannot comprehend why they think that. Um, except maybe to split off the the sort of radical Marxist kind of dirtbag left off from the sort of mainstream neoliberal left. But it seems to me culturally that this is that Dobbs is the first time that they've actually experienced a setback as opposed to a slowdown in probably 50 to 70 years. Right. And so why is it that they are also convinced that they are losing? Well, this is obviously an unsatisfactory answer from the left wing perspective, because I think they think that they're losing because they see sort of this neo-fascist right that's on the verge of dismantling American democracy and, you know, controlling everything, which to me is absurd and ridiculous and completely removed from reality. I think the, the, the most obvious answer is that the left has become accustomed to controlling everything, and they still do control most institutions in American life. And any serious challenge to their control of any institution is seen as an unconscionable loss because they have been raised in an era where there is a sense that they deserve to control all of our institutions. So when the right actually does mount a serious counteroffensive, it feels existential to them because it is in many ways a challenge to their monopoly over everything. So the reason I think that you're seeing a hysterical meltdown, for example, over the most recent Supreme Court term is because to your point, this is the first time that the right has actually dismantled left-wing control of an institution. The left does not control the Supreme Court anymore. Now, does that mean that conservative Supreme Court justices are always going to rule the right way on every issue? No, of course not. And that you've already seen uh, Republican appointees rule badly on a variety of important issues, but it is not a left-wing institution anymore. And it has been a left-wing institution since Roe, at least. And it's been an institution that the left was used to looking to as a sort of bulwark against conservative counteroffensives. And now that it isn't, that's a huge problem for a side of the political spectrum, a political project that was used to basically operating and controlling everything. Um, and so that feels like a major loss. I mean, it's, it's, it's a little cheeky, but there's the sort of, there's the sort of campus left-wing line that you see at protests occasionally, which is that when you're privileged, equality feels like oppression, right? Which is, uh, I think, in the way that they're using it is often, it's, it's illegitimate, but I, in, in this context, it's true. When, when you are used to enjoying unchallenged power everywhere, any challenge to your power or any actual fair fight feels like an existential threat and, the fa and feels like you're actually losing ground. So I would like to see an America in which the left was actually right that they were losing. I don't think that we're there yet. Um, but something like our takeover of the Supreme Court certainly is the first step in actually writing the, the scales a little bit. So you, you talk about a fair fight. Um, that That's really my question, because I, I agree with you in, in the sort of central thesis, not only the descriptive thesis that we are secularizing, but that this coalition that you're pointing to is probably the core of a new majority that will be quite enduring, that may, you know, fracture around the issue of abortion or a couple other issues. And actually, I think will probably be quite diverse when it comes to economic questions, right? Um, I, I, my husband and I wrote an essay for um, the American Mind a while back, uh, basically 
trying to describe the the Trump ascendancy and the ascendancy of the Trump coalition, trying to point out that actually the economic stuff, while the economic heterodoxy of, of Trump, while interesting and probably indicative of a number of, of important developments within the Republican Party and within conservatism, um, away from, let's say, a free market, really fundamentalism that doesn't acknowledge any any um, sort of dissent in any way, for example, on trade. Um, but but reminding people that actually that's not the core of this either, that the core of what all these people agree on, because in Texas and Arizona, uh, the Sun Belt, right, the Mountain West actually has done very well under Reaganism and NAFTA and, and the Rust Belt has done very poorly. So why is it that that's the political coalition that's building between the Rust Belt that has been screwed under the global economic order and the Sun Belt that has done extremely well? I think the core of that political coalition has to be these culture war issues. And so I, I completely agree with you that this this has the potential to be a, you know, a fractured but powerful political force. My great question in reading this was, will this coalition that's coming together be allowed to wield power? Um, and this goes to the, the, the fairness, the fair play point you just made and the, the fact that the left is so unused to losing any battle if this coalition starts to actually threaten hegemonic leftist power within institutions or the power of those institutions themselves given what has happened with the trump presidency and and for example um you know the the bureaucracies stepping completely out of out of line whether that's leaking stuff or actively trying to contravene presidential policy you know not reporting, you know, uh, critical foreign policy developments to the president so that he can make a decision. Those kinds of anti-democratic or or illegitimate unfair moves on the the sort of chessboard of politics, you know, will this coalition actually be allowed to make a number of substantial wins of, of the order of Dobbs or before it actually gets any ability to do that? Will the systems themselves essentially will the empire strike back here? Will they will they change the Rubik's cube or like the the gameplay so that these democratic majorities cannot actually put into action um, any of these these sort of cultural victories that they agree on? Well, I think the answer to that question very much determines or is is determined by how prepared the conservative movement and the Republican Party is to engage with a reality in which the empire is going to strike back, right? Which is that even as I think the Republican Party is beginning to wrap its head around the situation and just what they're up against. Um, and I mean, you can look to someone like Ron DeSantis in Florida, who's really engaging with um, with politics, with the understanding that he's not just up against the Democratic Party in the political arena, he's up against an array of sort of public-private institutions that are going to be working to undermine everything that he tries to do. Um, but you you see, again, the left talking themselves into the idea that the right taking power in any arena is an existential threat to democracy uh, and that everything is required to stop that from happening. So you are, especially if as the right continues to log victories, which I think they will in the sort of short to medium term, you are going to see the left regroup and respond aggressively. And I don't even think we really know what that's exactly going to look like yet. But right now, you know, Dobbs sort of took Democrats and the left by surprise. I mean, there's a lot of hysterical hand waving, but they actually don't have a plan really to confront it because they are not used 
to losing. So right now, the entire kind of left-wing institutional sphere is on the back foot because they don't really have a game plan for what to do when the right actually wields power effectively and actually takes ground. But I don't think that's going to last forever. They are going to regroup and they are going to develop a game plan and they are going to strike back and the right has to be ready for that. Right now in this window of opportunity we have, when they're on the back foot, I think we need to push as hard as we can because this is an unprecedented window where we actually can make serious strides. But you know, three, four, five, ten years down the line, we are going to be contending with a constellation of incredibly powerful institutions that are going to be committed to working together in sort of a coordinated fashion to undermine any attempt to actually pass conservative policy or actually take power for conservatives. So conservatives have to think in those terms. Whether or not they're going to be able to, you know, remains to be seen. I think they can. I mean, the genius of our constitutional system, even in the state that it's in right now, is that there are still tools and mechanisms for us to fight back, whether it's at the state level or, you know, with the Supreme Court. But we are going to be up against an array of incredibly powerful institutions that are going to be trying to undermine anything conservatives try to do. And conservatives need to sort of understand that that's the reality of the situation and engage in those terms. Yeah, I mean, look, I'm I'm very heartened by the way that DeSantis is acting, which does does reveal that he thinks about it in those terms, right? That one, he understands that he's not just fighting within the boundaries of the political arena, that he's fighting institutions, as you say, both public and private, that are going to use their power in a coordinated way. I mean, there's the question, though, of, of legitimate or illegitimate exercise of power, right? So if if, if the right if this new coalition takes power within the legitimate political institutions, which is to say they win the house and the Senate and they actually start. And I, I'm, I'm very pessimistic as to whether or not they'll actually start passing actually important anti-institutional legislation, but let's say they did that, right. Um, that we win the house, the Senate, and eventually the presidency, they start passing. Let's say they decide to gut the universities and they decide to get all the, the federal money um, out of the university system. They say this system is hostile to everything we believe in. There's no reason why we should be subsidizing our enemies. No more money for you, right? Um, given, I guess my question is, what illegitimate methods are these institutions going to use to try to make that exercise of political power, which is well within the bounds of every constitutional and, and small ale liberal sort of space, to make it illegitimate in the same way that they made Trump and his his election illegitimate for four years. Um, and that that really scares me. And I don't mean to be, go all like super black pill on this, but the way that, for example, the bureaucracies and the um, intelligence services of the United States acted during the four years of the Trump presidency really do. It, it frightens me for any situation, especially because Trump was kind of ineffectual. <laughs> Um, if we had somebody who was more effectual at actually hitting the left where it is, where it actually hurt, I I struggle to see what will prevent them from completely jettisoning any norms, any like sort of small L liberal norms, which anyway they've declared bigoted and racist um, for the actual exercise of, of properly democratically elected power. Right. Well, I, I mean, I think in many ways they already have jettisoned those norms. All the talk of norms from Democrats is very selective, right? When Republicans are actually doing things, it's a violation of norms. When Democrats are violating norms, of course, it's just defending our democracy. Um, 
But, you know, this is why, to my mind, it's so important that in many ways, Republicans do think in in sort of anti-institutionalist terms, right? I do want to see the Republican Party go to war with the universities and the education bureaucracy. I do want to see the Republican Party go to war with Silicon Valley. I want to see the Republican Party go to war with big business and, you know, the corporate bureaucracies that that wield big business, often against conservatives. Um, But that, you know, thinking in those terms is not something that sort of institutionalist conservatives and mainstream Republicans are really used to doing. They're used to thinking of powerful institutions as their friends, which in many ways is a holdover from a previous era that does not exist in American life anymore. Um, And I think Republican voters are actually much further along in understanding the reality of the situation than most Republican Party elites are, which is a good thing because it means that there are pressures on the Republican Party to move the right way. But it is going to be a slow and painful process, and we're going to sustain plenty of losses on the way. Um, In terms of whether or not I'm optimistic or pessimistic, I think all conservatism to a certain extent is pessimism. Uh, It's political pessimism enacted. We have a very low regard for human nature in general. But I do think that, like I said, I think the right is actually in a better place today to confront these issues than it has been in a long time because it's just beginning to grasp the reality of the situation. The Republican Party, I think, hasn't quite caught up yet. And you're going to see a lot of resistance and a lot of things that I'm frustrated with, even if we have majorities in both chambers of Congress and the White House. Um, But it is exponentially better in terms of the situation than it was just a few years ago. Um, Are we going to see a Republican Congress defund Harvard? Probably not, you know, at least in in the next five years or so. But are we going to see a lot more Republicans talking in and thinking in those terms? I think so. Um, And that, to me, is material we can work with. Um, So in general, we need to be thinking in terms of weakening these institutions that are controlled by our enemies. Silicon Valley should be weaker than it is. The university system should be weaker than it is, because to your point, insofar as we allow them to maintain power, they're just going to use it to undermine us. But, you know, that is a long term project. I think we're seeing the beginnings of it with people like DeSantis in Florida. Um, And there is an appetite for it in the Republican base. So Republican politicians who don't who sort of fail to act in those terms are going to be punished by their voters eventually. Um, so to me, that's the reason for some modest, uh, restrained optimism uh, about the situation, which is that those of us who are in sort of elite conservative institutions, but share the Republican voters appetite for a more aggressive approach, have a lot of resources to work with. Um, most Republican voters are on our side. We just need to enact those principles by actually pushing conservative elites and Republican elites to act accordingly. Yeah, it, it strikes me that anti-institutionalism, the way you describe that, right? Um, that that may or may not be compatible, maybe not compatible with, with a sort of small C conservatism, right? Um, you, you've been described as radical by the, by the new republic. Um, radical doesn't seem like a descriptor that squares with the kind of institutional conservatism of, of conservative intellectual heroes like Kirk, um, you know, what makes you embrace this idea of sort of anti-institutional radicalism? And why, why do you think actually it, it seems like the younger a conservative is, the more likely he or she is to be this kind of radical, meaning the, there are a lot of institutions that are unsalvageable. We need to, um, in some way, completely destroy them, deplete their power, replace them in some way. Um, you know, why, why do you think younger conservatives do tend towards radicalism, perhaps in comparison to younger conservatives even 20 years ago? 
Right. It's an important question. Obviously, radical is a charged term. But I mean, if you actually look at what radical means in terms of its Latin root, what it means is getting to the root of something and, and uprooting it, which I think is the way that conservatives need to think today. On the one hand, obviously, radicalism and conservatism are often, often discussed as opposing poles. But it's worth recognizing that the first generation of conservatives, when they were young, uh, explicitly understood their project in radical terms. People forget now in the mission statement of National Review, where I work, William F. Buckley described himself as a radical conservative. Um, and he described himself as a revolutionary against the liberal order uh, at various other at various other junctures. He called um, uh, Goldwater's campaign a counter-revolution, right? So they were really thinking in those terms. And I think as conservatism became institutionalized and became more associated with sort of institutionalism, it lost kind of some of its radical edge. But in many ways, I see the conservatism that is more sort of potent or popular, particularly in my generation of young conservatives, as a return to how conservatives initially understood their project, which is it is a certain kind of radicalism in that it's seeking to overthrow an institutional order, but it's doing it in order to conserve a shared way of life, um, uh, which I think is what conservatives should be fighting for. We're trying to defend America, understanding that the institutions that we're trying to weaken or overthrow are a threat to the things that we want to conserve. So it might seem sort of contradictory on its face, but I actually see the two as necessarily linked. Um, and I think young conservatives are more partial to this just because they have much more direct experience with the radicalism of these institutions than a lot of our older counterparts. You know, if you spend time on a college campus today and you see how radical the ideology is that predominates in the classroom and you hear sort of students speaking in those terms, and then you see that ideology seep out into all of our other institutions, from the New York Times to big business to Silicon Valley, um, you understand firsthand what kind of threat that is. And how much it cannot be allowed to spread if we are going to fight to protect a shared American way of life. So in many ways, I think the reason that a lot of young conservative sort of intellectuals and elites and politicians are interested in a much more aggressive kind of politics is just it's just experiential. It's just their encounter firsthand with a much more hard edged left and their understanding that that left's capture of our institutions really is at odds with everything that conservatives care about. Um, and that's why I think young conservatives are probably there's probably more of an appetite in the up and coming generation of conservatives for something that, for lack of a better word, probably could be described as a kind of radicalism. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll say this sort of um, from a, a personal perspective, Kirk, a kind of Kirkian conservatism was always deeply unsatisfying to me. I encountered it probably the same way uh, that maybe you did uh I, going through the, the, the comforting embrace of conservative ink, um, you know, you read all the same essays, you read all the same books. Um, and I, I always found it devoid of like, like pretending that conservatism is devoid of actual content uh, to be out of keeping with American history and out of keeping um, and certainly with how I felt about my own intellectual views, right. Or my own ideological commitments. Like I actually, always felt that I do have ideological commitments, not just a sort of a natural instinctive, you know, don't tear down the fence until you know why it's there kind of, yes, that, that's part of conservatism and that kind of thumb on the scale for prudence and the respect for tradition. But it, it seems like you actually need a reason to say that your tradition is good. Um, and that was always inherently dissatisfying to me that the kind of pluralism, the sort of 
verging almost into moral relativism where it's, you know, civil, all civilizations are wise. Well, not all civilizations are equally good. Um, so I, I always had kind of this objection, but I, I think this moment is really pulling apart those poles of conservatism between the people who do believe that there is content to preserving, as you say, the American way of life and people who believe that conservatism is a disposition. Because if you believe that conservatism is a disposition um, and, and that you believe that s- slow change is the only way forward, that, that massive or, or radical change is, is dangerous, which I actually do believe is dangerous. Um, but that, that now not only says, you know, makes conservatives the, the new uh, conservators of the New Deal, which it has for all of movement conservatism, um, it now makes us the conservators of, of essentially wokeness. Right. Um, and, and to that extent, there really is a lot of merit to the critique that conservatism for the last several decades has been progressivism driving the speed limit. Right. And I wrote my my senior thesis in college on this British political philosopher, Michael Oakeshott, who was exactly the kind of conservative you're describing. He sort of hated politics and he described conservatism as a disposition. And it's a very beautiful literary articulation of a particular kind of disposition. And what I would say in its defense is that it makes some amount of sense at a time when our institutions are not controlled by radicals, right? At a di- in a different time, in a different moment, in a different context, that kind of steady-as-she-goes conservatism is very useful and important. Um, and it can help us identify what we're fighting for and what we should be trying to preserve. But I don't think it's enough in terms of giving us a political philosophy that actually allows us to fight to defend things. Because if you're sense of sort of small C conservatism is just that you are fighting to preserve something approximating the status quo, or you're just opposed to radical change, you are going to basically be acquiescing to driving the country into a ditch because that approach to politics is just basically, like you said, the speed limit version of progressivism. That's not what we need right now. We need an actual, some kind of radical course correction because the way the country is going is unsustainable. Uh, and for those of us who love this country and see something noble and redeeming in its traditions and its history and its people, um, it's it's unacceptable to just accept that as what conservatism is. Um, we need something that is actually willing to affect a radical course correction, which requires something more aggressive than basically being opposed to radical change. Um, there's plenty of resources for that in the American conservative tradition. Like I said, a lot of the early conservative thinkers were a kind of radical Um But the kind of conservatism that someone like Kirk was articulating was a defense of a bygone era that does not exist anymore. And in that sense, as beautiful as Kirk's writing is, um, and as much as it helps us understand what is good about America and what is worth defending, it doesn't give us the resources to defend or to, to respond to the contemporary moment in the way that I think that we need to. Yeah, I mean... I guess I wonder, I, I've found myself wondering recently if, if conservative is really the, the right word to describe the American right anymore. Um, and I guess it is conservative in that there, there is, what we are conserving is, is a way of life. Um, but it, I, I, I guess I agree with what you just laid out. I, I, I think the necessary application of political power will increasingly be unconservative. Um, if if we don't want to sacrifice the actual content of what what we're defending completely, um, then what is going to be necessary is is a kind of unconservative or anti-conservative application of political power. Um, but but within that, I, I 
what frustrates me about this debate, I think, is that the very people who are, let's say, um, kind of the, the moderate liberal left and let's say a, a kind of establishment can small C conservatism that's very wary of these kinds of big changes is that I agree that some of these changes could be these radical changes actually could end up very badly. Um, but I don't see any alternative. And, and furthermore, I see like the longer this goes on, the more radical solutions will be required to stop it. Right. And, and so actually to me, thy small C conservative instinct is the choices are not between a sort of quiet decline and, um, and, and uh, a dangerous sort of radical reactionary movement that, that brings us to a halt, but rather <laughs> that, that all of these options, the longer this goes on, it's going to engender the kind of backlash that truly is, um, has some elements of, of not just radicalism, but, um, you know, ferocity and anti-liberalism that, I don't know, I, I'm being inarticulate right now, but I'm, I'm thinking more about the, the, the pre, um, pre-revolutionary, um, pre-fascist Spain, right, where you have a moderate party that increasingly turns a blind eye, that tries to play within the, in the lines and turns a blind eye to a left that is essentially using illegitimate political tactics to, to gain power. Right. And in the end, you, you don't, it's not like they won um, by sticking to their, their sort of small C moderation. What happened is the movement that rose up to replace them was fascist right. um, and, and similarly disregarding of any boundaries of, of legitimate political power versus illegitimate. Um, and, and so that, that's, I think, what frustrates me about this is that the folks who are sitting back and saying, well, both sides are uh, potentially playing with fire here. Like the, the, the safe bet is the small C conservative way. We'll make small changes. Maybe we'll do a little uh, uh, occupational licensing reform and, and some tax cuts and, <laughs> and, and hope for the best and, and trust in, in um, sort of the inherent moderation of the American people. I, uh, my worry is that <laughs> it's not like that vacuum will be filled by something. And I hope it's filled by what you wrote in your, your New York Times essay in, in, in terms of the, the new right actually being more muscular and robust on these cultural issues in a way that actually does stem future true radicalism. Um, but I, I don't know, which, which way do you, what's your, what's your prediction? Do you think? Um, well, I agree with you. I mean, I like to, to put it much more simply, um, things are going to get crazier, right? Things are going to get much crazier, even if, if the right is sort of prepared to confront the monumental issues that I think they need to, before things get better, they're going to get crazier. Uh, and we need a conservatism, to your point, that does more than stand athwart history yelling, please go a little slower and maybe with lower taxes, right? We need something that's actually going to stop the decline of America, not just because, to your point, the decline of America is bad because we love America, but because that decline is not going to be slow and steady. It's going to be increasingly uh, unmoored. It's going to be increasingly crazy. It's going to be increasingly polarized. And, you know, it, there's it's it's obviously perish the thought, but it's not impossible to imagine a situation in which it descends into real chaos and violence. Um, to me, that's one of the reasons I would still call myself a conservative is a because I actually am fighting to conserve something. I'm not one of these radicals who thinks that the founding was a mistake, that America was poisoned from the start. I genuinely love this country and I want to defend and fight fight for it. Um, but also because 
you know, I think actually in, in some ways, the more muscular or aggressive or radical kind of conservatism is the way to restore the center. It is the way to bring the temperature down long term. And the moderate steady as she goes conservatism is actually going to lead to more craziness in the future because the other side is not putting t- taking their foot off the gas pedal. I think if the past five years have taught us anything, it's clearly that. Um, if you give them an inch, they will continue to take a mile and they will not abide any sort of, you know, calls for moderation or norms. That's just not something they're interested in. Um, they've told us what their plan is for the country and it's a disaster. Uh, and I want to do everything that we can to stop it. Um, again, the reason I would call myself as a conservative is because one of the other things besides just conserving things about the country is that conservatism does counsel certain permanent insights about human nature and politics and the use of government and all those things. And I still take all those things seriously. Um, I think we have to be prudential in the way that we pursue a much more aggressive agenda. I'm not someone who thinks just burn it all down for burn it all down sake is a good, is a good thing. There is, there are plenty of ways that this could go too far. And we need to be careful about that. And we need to have those discussions and debates, but we have to be willing to think in anti-institutionalist terms and think in terms of actually weakening the institutions that are trying to undermine not just us, but the country, if we're actually going to restore anything approximating the way of life that most Americans have lived for most of our history. Um, so again, to me, in a weird way, that's the true moderate position in terms of trying to restore the center and bring the temperature down long term. Um, the people who posture as moderates are actually the ones who are going to lead to more radical outcomes um, in the future. I couldn't agree more with that. No, no slow, slow European decline for America. I think uh, that's, that, that option is not on the table. Nate Hockman, thank you so much for joining High Noon. Um, people can find your work at National Review. Um, you have essays coming out in a variety of publications, both conservative and mainstream. Um, continue. I encourage everybody to continue to keep an eye on on Nate's work going forward. So, thank you so much for for joining me today. Yeah, thanks, Inez. That was fun. And thank you to our listeners. High Noon with Inez Stepman is a production of the Independent Women's Forum. As always, you can send comments and questions to inez.stepman at iwf.org. Please help us out by hitting the subscribe button and leaving us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts, Acast, Google Play, YouTube, or iwf.org. Be brave, and we'll see you next time on High Noon.